Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on the D-Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with a member of the Fidencio Aldama support group. We'll address the issue of the Yaqui community's defense of a gas pipeline through their territory and more specifically speak about Fidencio Aldama's case, his detention as being held responsible for the death of one person in Noma de Bacum, and his position of defense against that claim. A member of the Fidencio Aldama support group, Scott, joins us to give us more information. Scott, can you introduce yourself and tell us more about this case? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, my name is Scott, and I'm a member of the Fidencio Aldama Support Group, which is a group of folks who came together about six to eight months ago um, to support the imprisoned Yaqui political prisoner Fidencio Aldama, um, who's currently serving a 15-year, six-month sentence for a crime he did not commit uh, in defense of Yaqui territory, land, and life, um, and against a gas pipeline. And um, I've been involved, as well as others, um, in an ad hoc manner over the years. He's already been in prison for four, more than four years. And so we've been doing, you know, things like translations and putting together pamphlets and that sort of thing, trying to spread the word. But we figured it'd be uh, more effective to come together sort of as a collective, um, gathering mutual friends and, and comrades to form a group working with Fidencio and Fidencio's partner, Carmen, um, down in, in Loma de Bacum, Sonora, Mexico, and to really focus our efforts um, in a more organized fashion towards fighting for his freedom and also uh, supporting the struggle of, of the Yaqui people in, in that land. Um, there's folks right now, we're a transnational collective with people in, so -called, in the so-called US and Mexico. Um, and we're just getting started. We just launched our website about two months ago, maybe less. Um, so we're very much in the beginning phases, but I, I'm glad for the opportunity to, to come on and talk about the case and encourage folks who are interested. I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but uh, just right off the bat to check out fidencioaldama.org, I-F-D-E-N-C-I-O-A-L-D-A-M-A.org. Um, and you can find tons of info and, and that's our group's website. Well, Scott, thank you for taking the time to share information about this case and the broader context of this case. One of the things that I think a lot of people may, well, may, may not be aware of is just the, the long lasting conversation about indigenous sovereignty, indigenous resistance, and indigenous people's uh, claim to the land and protection of the land. And you mentioned that, you know, Fidencia right now is imprisoned as a political prisoner. And this has to do with a uh, gas pipeline. Can you offer us some more context as to, for example, what would people need to know to kind of get an idea of what has happened? I think it's very important to understand the context of, of um, essentially Yaqui resistance and, and defense of their land that goes back centuries. Uh, if you want to look back, we could really start the story in, in 1533. Um, or we could start it today, right? And and the issue ultimately is 
is the same. It's unchanged over the past nearly 500 years, um, as is the case with, with much of the settler colonial project of the Americas that's been going on. So uh, from 1533 to 1929, there were a series of um, basically wars called the Yaqui Wars, which were attacks by first the Spanish crown and then the Mexican government and then the post-revolutionary Mexican government against the Yaqui people. Um, and as a result, the Yaqui people successfully defended their land and territory for over four centuries against uh, three different regimes, um, but they also suffered grave losses. Many people had to flee to uh, places such as Arizona, which is why there's a large Yaqui population in Arizona. Other uh, Yaqui individuals were taken and um, forcibly detained and transferred to the Yucatan to work as slaves on the agave plantations um, in post-revolutionary Mexico in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, but since then, there is a group of eight communities um, in Sonora, Mexico, just north of Ciudad Obregón, that comprises uh, the Yaqui Nation. And they, as, as history shows, they have been stridently defending their, their nation and their sovereignty and their autonomy, their self-determination, their forms of, of their customs, um, traditions, forms of self-governance for over uh, 400 years. And so viewing this, this pipeline that they're trying to build through Yaqui territory needs to be understood within that context of a committed defense of Yaqui land, life, and territory and ways of being um, that have spanned ever since, you know, Europeans set foot in the Americas or what we call the Americas. I think that's probably the most difficult, I guess, conceptual consideration of what's happening here because when we think about community resistance, specifically dealing with indigenous communities. Most of the time, I think the conversation for a lot of the people that may feel disinterested is, well, what's the big deal? It's just a pipeline. We all have things going through our neighborhood that we don't want. And that's a very, I wanna give a lot of credit, maybe I shouldn't, but that's sincere, <laughs> but it's apolitical. It doesn't give context to what's happening. And even when we think about our own neighborhoods that we say, well, you know, we all go through inconveniences. Well, most of our inconveniences are apolitical in the sense that we haven't even thought of like where we stand. So like our homes, how many people have were displaced, were removed from the ancestral communities in order for us to feel so comfortable saying this is my neighborhood. And what a lot of us lose context is that there are people, yes, 500 years later, still standing on territory that they say, you know, they didn't come and build a mall in my neighborhood. These territories stand as, a, as a ancestral lands and not just ancestral, um, they are a makeup of who we are as a people. One of the things I remember I teach and I was, um, this is a long time ago, I was talking about, I can't recall the community in particular, but we're talking about reservation rights and a uranium. So it might've been Arizona. And, and in that case, it was, a, these, it was a documentary showing the, the grandmothers fighting, literally walking around with these rifles, push, you know, pushing away these companies. And the one of the students said, I don't get it. Why don't they just move? This very kind of, and I say this, I give him a lot of credit because I don't want to believe that people intentionally want to hurt. But that statement is such a hurtful statement. 
why why don't they just move why don't they just take the money and move and then i think like that doesn't connect well because i think people don't have a context of territory and sense of place and peoplehood many of us have grown up being able to move and not feeling that we lost a lot so that hey i moved from new york to la and they didn't do anything to me well i think what they're missing is that they're still contained within the same nation state so that's like moving from one side of the parking lot to the other side of the parking lot i i'd like to hear if there's a conversation there in terms of what's at stake here why why is there such a resistance to this pipeline i appreciate your framing of the question and and and, and problematizing um but yet also giving space to people's responses who may not really fully understand this and i also want to note that you know i am i'm a gringo settler um in occupied tongva land right and so i'm i'm it's not my intention in this to speak on behalf of Fidencio or the Yaqui people. I certainly can't do that. And that's out of, out of my place. Um, and I should also note that obviously I'm not vetting everything I say by the rest of the comrades in the group. So any analysis or perspective I offer is really on, on my shoulders. So I just want to put that out there. It's interesting you were pointing out, well, you know, people build stuff that we don't like all the time, maybe around where we live and you know we just accept it but maybe therein lies the problem right it's that one there's a necessity for an acknowledgement of of one's location and one's privilege within that location and um if there's something going on in your location maybe that you don't like happening maybe you should organize with your neighbors and community members to stop it which is essentially what's happening in the Yaqui Nation or numerous indigenous communities around the world and even non-indigenous communities, right? And we've seen people fight those battles and we've seen people win them. Um, so the, I think here we're so accustomed to things happening like, oh, well, there, you know, there are zoning laws and there are environmental impact reviews and um, there's city councils and that sort of thing. And it's all kind of either above our heads or too much trouble to get involved with. But really, if, I mean, what it comes down to is putting, if something is going down that's gonna impact your neighborhood, your way of life, um, your people's way of life, your community's way of life, then stand up and, and try to fight back and push back against it. It is a little more difficult in a situation where um, we live in a settler colonial state where um, most folks are not indigenous here and we live on, on occupied indigenous lands and we're encouraged not to have a sense of uh, connection to place nor connection to community. We're incentivized to be individuals and not think in those terms, whereas you know, one can only assume, but I, I don't think it'd be a stretch to say, like, the Yaqui people remember, um, and they have traditions, they, they have knowledge that is passed down through the generations, they have a language that they're, that they work very hard to maintain different cult, um, customs and traditions and dances and festivals and celebrations, and ways of being together in community, that these, uh, impositions such as a pipeline may drastically affect both in terms of the fact that it's being installed without their permission and it poses a danger um, 
it's an environmental danger. It passes through the community. It passes through an organic uh, orchard and garden where they grow medicinal herbs that they use, where they grow uh, all sorts of, of food for their community. And who would want a, a gas pipeline running through their gardens and their orchards without their permission? So I think, I don't know if that helps get to the answer of your question, I think it's worth reflecting on. And I think it's, you know, it all comes down to one's positionality and an understanding of also the privileges that a positionality carries and the legacies one either has or does not have in connection to the place where one resides. I appreciate your, your itemizing of just how complicated that response would be, given the way that like you and I are having it as two non-Yaki people. There's solidarity, maybe empathy, commitment, but I think that's probably the part that makes this so difficult that when we think about the stakeholders, it's a lot of people, anyone that is in that area is, is, an, is an invested and, and literally maybe legally vested person that has a right to speak up. But as you mentioned earlier, this is happening in Sonora, but it's connected to like global economics, mm -hmm. transnational corporations. And I think that's what makes this such a difficult conversation because at that point, it opens up and closes conversations. For, for me, it opens it up because then I'm vested. I'm in the United States presently. If this company is a United States company, then I feel committed to speak up as an invested party because not in my name type of thing. You know, um, I know this is not a government um, policy, so it's not the U.S. government doing it, but it is sanctioned by the U.S. government in its very corporate structure. You know, like I'll ask eventually uh, if I do research, I'm, I'll, I'll be looking into like where is this company incorporated, and if it's in the United States, then the, then we are held accountable. These things are happening, hurting people. I'm not benefiting, maybe, but maybe maybe indirectly I am, and I think there's this sense of culpability that I'm working through you know, as trying to figure out, well, then what is my responsibility as someone that has become aware? And I think to reference something you mentioned earlier, how it's a coalition of, of people from different communities coming together and it's building momentum. That's how I came across. I saw the website. I came across this issue and I was like, wow, would someone come and, and record this conversation? To me, I, I feel kind of encouraged by that sense of reaching out posting something and saying this hopefully reaches someone. And I know it reached many, you know, I'm one of those many right now that's hopefully thinking about this conversation and asking themselves, what is our responsibility? You know, as people that are committed to what's going on, because I see, I see a lot of movement on, for example, being aware on environmental issues. And you pose this uh, response in that way as an environmental issue, this is relevant. So maybe even just that alone is important, but I find it sometimes frustrating how when we talk about environmental issues, we forget the people, you know, and like indigenous sovereignty is tied to environmental issues. Environmental issues are tied to structural racism. And I think those are the parts that I, that I feel um, sometimes get overlooked, specifically here as I think about this moment, of, of looking at something that at least for, for some of us that were more aware the last couple of years, the North Dakota pipeline, it, it's very reminiscent, these very parallel issues of 
energy companies going through territories for supposedly the common good of the nation state, but at the price of, of indigenous communities. And I think that's the hurtful part because indigenous communities have been paying the price for so many other people's comfort. You're like, oh, you want gas and it just comes out of your thing, have another community pay the price for it. And, and I think that's the part that gets me, yeah, angry, but also feeling culpable because like I am at that side that I can turn on my gas stove <laughs> and I don't have to ask what are what, the pipes? Where did they come from? Who had to pay the price, for, you know? And here's where we kind of think about where we see this community standing in, in, in opposition. And I've, I'm curious if you can kind of give us a little bit of context of where they are in that resistance. I know that, for example, I believe it was the, the state of Sonora, the, the court paused the pipeline. Am I, am I correct on that? You're correct. Um, before I get into that, to go back to uh, the, the larger point you were making about um, where is this company based? Uh, and also the price that indigenous communities and peoples and nations continue to pay uh, for the comfort of others, I think is, is very compelling. And your example of Standing Rock is right on point. Um, the, the company is Semper Energy, which is based in San Diego. And if anyone pays, for example, thinking about uh, I think culpability is maybe a harsh word to use, but thinking about involvement or um, one's, one's role in this global structure of neoliberal capitalism and resource extraction, or I don't even want to call it resource extraction, but you know, extractivist capitalism. Um, anyone that is listening that pays uh, their gas bill to SoCal Gas in Southern California, that's owned by Semper Energy. So for example, me, I pay monthly Semper Energy, this company that's that's just trying to destroy the livelihoods of these comrades down in Inyaki territory. And that doesn't feel good, right? Um, but how else am I gonna guess? And so there's that, that friction, right? Um, and I also do think this ties in, and we're trying to build these connections and, and you hit the key point exactly that the resistance to Standing Rock, the resistance in Unistoten up in uh, so-called British Columbia, uh, the comrades resisting the Appalachians against pipelines, against the, um, I, I don't know, blanking on the name right now, who just, some folks just got hit with some kidnapping charges um, for blockading pipeline construction in West Virginia. Um, and there's resistance to uh, Enbridge pipelines up in Minnesota. So there's, there's lots of pipeline resistance often led by indigenous peoples because it directly impacts them because they're not taken into consideration, right? There's still this sort of racialized neoliberal capitalism in play here where, you know, certain people are taking um, their needs and, and wants are, are more important than other people. And what's going on in, in Unistoten is, is similar to what's going on in Yaki territory, is similar to what's going on in, in indigenous land in, in Minnesota. So right now with the, the pipeline, so the pipeline runs from the border with the US through the length of Sonora into Sinaloa. So it's not even bringing gas to uh, Sonora at all, right? It's bringing gas to Sinaloa, which is south of, of Sonora. And it's completely owned by a Sempra subsidiary called Ainova Energy. 
because due to Mexican laws, um, foreign companies have to basically create shell groups or, or front groups um, to, to operate in Mexico. And they started construction of, of this pipeline in 2013. And there's two sections in this one section, the Guaymas El Oro section passes through appropriately enough Guaymas Sonora to El Oro Sonora and, is, and passes through these eight Yaqui communities in the Yaqui nation. To get a little bit into the specifics, seven of the communities agreed supposedly to the pipeline while the community of Loma de Bacum said no. They held a community assembly where they gathered and they said, we're not gonna let the pipeline pass. There's no obviously official documentation, but based on reports and speaking with others, the other seven communities who agreed, um, it's a somewhat dubious agreement. You know, people were bought off, they were given things. Uh, people who were not authorized to make decisions on behalf of the community were the ones who were signing off on this project. Um, so it's a, another way of not only how a foreign multinational corporation comes in and impacts an indigenous territory, but also creates disruption and division within uh, an indigenous community um, because for a project that will offer no benefit, but only risk to their community. And you're correct that because they didn't hold under Mexican law and technically international law, um, even though usually the process is a joke, when you, when the government or a company wants to build a project on indigenous land, they are required to have what's called a consulta or like a consultation with the people residing in that land, which basically means gathering in an assembly and making a collective decision as to yes or no about this project. That never happened in Loma de Bacum, nor in any other of the seven uh, communities in Yaqui territory. And as a result of that, um, Loma de Bacum held its own assembly, said no, and then went to the federal court in Sonora uh, and filed an amparo, which is basically like an injunction, and they won. And so the Mexican government itself ruled, I believe, on August 26, 2016, that construction had to cease on that section of the pipeline. But as is so often the case, Inova Energy, AKA Semper Energy, just completely ignored the order and kept building the pipeline. And so um, in response about a, a little later in May um, of 2017, a bunch of Yaqui women from Loma de Bakum uh, started organizing and they said, you know, they're building this pipeline. We've got this injunction against it. What are we going to do? Um, they called people from other, other communities within the territory because it's important, I think, to also uh, understand that while we speak of eight communities, it's not like they're separate towns, right? Like Yaqui people identify, like, <laughs> so any member of the Yaqui nation that the land of the Yaqui nation belongs to all Yaqui people, right? So it's not like Loma de Bakum's land is different from Loma de Guamuchil's land or something like that. It's all Yaqui land. And so other folks from other communities came together and um, what they did is they borrowed some of the heavy equipment from Inova Energy. They dug up nearly 10 kilometers of pipeline, um, dismantled it using blowtorches and welding equipment and brought it to Ciudad Obregón to sell as scrap metal. And so they basically ripped out 
by hand 10 kilometers of pipeline. Um, and I mean, if you want to stop something, that's one way of getting it done, right? <laughs> and so, and then after that, they set all the all the company's vehicles on fire. Um, so this was this is actually after Fidencio was arrested, but that's some of the that's the degree of resistance that folks are willing to go through. And I mean, they went through the legal means, and the company kept operating with impunity. So they took matters into their own hands and through direct action stopped construction of the pipeline. So as of now, the pipeline is incomplete and non-functioning. So Scott, what I'm curious about is just how you can kind of frame for us the context of what feels to me is like a legal contradiction that the state support supported the community's appeal to stop the construction. Yet there seems to be an incident that happens out of this moment where someone is put in, uh, in, in jail, prison for an accused murder. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? So the, the federal judge, like I, like I mentioned in August of 2016, issued an injunction against the pipeline, um, but yet the company kept building. Unfortunately, what happened was about a month later or sorry, two months later on October 21st of 2016, there was a communal assembly in Loma de Bacum, which is the, the town resisting the pipeline in Yaki territory, um, where again, this is not proven with any documentation, but it's broadly understood that folks were incentivized by Ainova Energy to attack the community assembly in Loma de Bacum with the intention of overthrowing the traditional authorities and replacing them with authorities who would support the pipeline and that way the pipeline could get built. Um, there were two attacks in that day that involved, involved around 600 people. During the attack, one individual, uh, Cruz Buetemea, I think, um, was killed, unfortunately. And he was from Loma, de Guaymuchil, uh, which is a neighboring town of Loma de Bacum. Um, six days later, the Sonoran prosecutors arrived in Loma de Bacum. The, the attack was successfully repelled, but this, this one person was killed and, and numerous people were injured. Um, prosecutors arrived and they said they wanted to start questioning people. And they so they were interviewing folks one by one until Fidencio Aldama came. And the day of the attack, uh, like in many indigenous communities, folks are often given what are called cargos or positions within the community roles they're expected to fulfill um, sort of communal work. And Fidencio at that moment was part of the traditional guard, which could be understood as sort of the community police, um, very distinct from how we understand police in, in our context. Um, and so he was carrying a weapon on the day of the invasion, uh, a 45 caliber weapon. When Fidencio presented himself to the prosecutors to give his statement, his account of the events, they immediately tied him up, closed the van that he was in and drove out of the community. So it was clear that they weren't interested in investigating anything. They were just looking for Fidencio. He, was, he wasn't presented with an arrest warrant um, or anything like that. He wasn't told why it was being taken. His wife considers him to, to have been kidnapped by the state. 
he was brought to Ciudad Obregón, which is southeast of Loma de Bacum. And there, it turns out that the day before they went to question folks, they had already compiled uh, an arrest warrant and a case file against Fidencio, as well as had a printout of his voter ID. And um, he was forced without the presence of a translator or lawyer to sign an arrest warrant. And he's been imprisoned ever since October 27, 2016. Um, and in March of 2018, was sentenced to 15 years and six months in prison uh, with a 75,000 peso fine as well. So he's already been in prison um, for four plus years. And the main thing that is, it's so painfully obvious that it just drives you up the wall, is that, um, of course, it's tragic whenever there's a loss of life, right? But the autopsy shows and the ballistics shows that the individual killed was killed with a 22 caliber round. All the traditional guard in Loma de Bacum use 45 caliber weapons, including Fidencio. He was holding a 45 caliber weapon. It would, so therefore it is physically impossible um, in this universe that we live in according <laughs> to the laws for him to have shot and killed this man. Um, and in addition, the traditional guard is forbidden by the rules of the community from firing their weapons at anyone. They can only fire into the air. They're not allowed to shoot at anyone, um, which is why all these folks were armed when there were these clashes and they didn't, they didn't kill anyone. Um, there's some speculation, it may sound like a conspiracy, I don't know, but that um, what was needed was a death to occur for them to put pressure on Loma de Bakum to get the pipeline passed. And that can also be reinforced by the fact that in various ways, um, it's been insinuated to Fidencio and Loma de Bakum that if the community agrees to let the pipeline pass, Fidencio will be released. So essentially, he, um, the evidence proving his innocence was completely ignored. The evidence proving that he was essentially kidnapped by the state was thrown out by the judge. Um, he's in a difficult situation now because his most recent lawyer uh, passed away from COVID a few months ago. So he doesn't have a lawyer. He has an appeal in the works, which we're trying to get more information on. But basically, he's a hostage being held by the state so that a transnational company can build a pipeline through indigenous territory is, is how I, I think we can best understand it. Um, he didn't commit the murder. And I mean, ultimately, questions of guilt or innocence based on what the state says who is guilty or innocent are, are kind of irrelevant to me as an abolitionist and, and you know, one who doesn't believe anyone should be in prison. But um, in this case, he clearly is innocent and he's He's a token in a, in a larger game on behalf of, of transnational corporations and, and capital. What's difficult about this conversation is that um, when we hear these incidents, they feel unreasonable to those that are not, I don't know, just far removed from, from the politics of resistance because they would say like, that makes no sense. Why would a multinational corporation go to these lengths to hurt people? And yet it doesn't take a lot of work to look at Central America history, <laughs> United States history, Hawaii, um, 
Alaska and see the, the documented history of acts that are criminal. So here without, you know, you and I are speaking on, on the speculation perspective, but we're allowed to have that conversation based on our insight into what's happened and what I'm hearing from you. But the documented history of economics is a violent one. And I think that's what is so difficult about these talks that are happening around the globe is that they don't make sense from a perspective that looks at corporations as above getting their hands dirty. Like, why would they? Why would, why would these corporations do that? And then you think about, well, if you look at what's happened up to this point, they have, you know, it's documented. All the big brand names that you can think of have gotten their hands dirty. And I think that's where at least I get frustrated when I have these talks with people is because it sounds like when you speak, you're the person that's being unreasonable and they're in reasonable positions. But at this point, I think the conversation is, is, is difficult because it is about looking at well, what can we do? So my curiosity at this point is where does the, the community that is in support of the, of the Yaqui community go? What are they doing? What, are the, what can people do if they want to find out more? If they want to find out more, um, they can visit our website, FidencioAldama.org. Uh, we, it's a bilingual, it's in Spanish and English. Um, we have a timeline of events, a news section. We have uh, information that you can print out and distribute pamphlets, um, art, that sort of thing. Uh, you can find our Twitter account on there, our email. We also have um, a bilingual announcement email list that you can sign up for. And if you have any questions um, about this aspects of maybe this conversation or you have some ideas or want to get involved, we encourage you know you to reach out to us in either English or Spanish or, I mean, any other, whatever language we can figure out a way to translate, we can, we can communicate, right? Um, and I think right now, um, we're working on various ways to support Fidencio that um, will be announced shortly. Uh, so we encourage people to, to check out the, the list, follow us on Twitter, that sort of thing. There's also an excellent article we just translated and posted on the site by some comrade, uh, some, some great journalists in Mexico from Pie de Pagina, which is an excellent website um, that looked looks at exactly this conversation we've been having and, and the, the Yaqui resistance and defense of their territory, the case of Fidencio, the dismantling of the pipeline um, and gets more into de depth as to, as to why this resistance is happening and how it all unfolded. For um, right now, um, we're digging more into the legal side of things. We know there's an appeal in the works. And so we're trying to uh, figure out when that is supposed to be ruled on. And so we can apply some pressure. But um, I think the, the best way for folks to get involved is to, to reach out to us and follow us by whatever means is most accessible for them. Um, and to note that we're not just a group of random people who are like, pick this one dude to support. We we work closely with Fidencio's wife, Carmen. Um, we're in constant communication with her. We have the endorsement of her and Fidencio and other comrades in putting together this campaign and working. As you know, I had to ask her for permission to come on this show. So like we don't make moves without taking uh, 
Fidencio's, you know, prioritizing Fidencio's case and well-being. Um, so we try to be really accountable and thoughtful and mindful about how we go about uh, conducting our work. And um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, I was just looking forward to just kind of thinking about like what what you would uh, recommend people to do, which you've done. Um, on that note, I want to thank you, Scott, for sharing your information with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You have just finished hearing a conversation with Scott, a member of the Fidencio Aldama support group. We spoke about the Yaquis community's long history of resistance in defense of their traditional homelands. And the case of Fidencio Aldama. The case of Fidencio Aldama is one that is reminiscent of many indigenous communities throughout North America in their defense of their traditional homelands as they become threatened by multinational corporations, more specifically, energy companies. In this case, Innova, a subsidiary of Sempra Energy based out of San Diego. You heard our respective opinions on this perspective, and I hope this conversation sparks interest to research more information regarding the Yaqui community in Sonora, Fidel Soldama, and maybe more broadly, of similar situations of indigenous communities fighting in defense of their homelands throughout North and South America, as well as the other respective global territories. Please feel free to check out thereport.org to review past segments. As always, thank you for tuning in. I hope you found this conversation relevant and interesting and take it to your respective circles to continue. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.